Well, I'd invite you to join me in standing out of reverence and honor for the word of the Lord. And our scripture text for this morning comes from the book of Genesis. We'll be in chapter 12 and only looking at verses 1 through 3. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. And these are the words of the one and only God. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, Indeed, it is you and you alone who make a name of your choosing, who make even a great name and a great nation by your sovereign grace, by your infinite majesty. And so we pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear, that we might see but a little more of the glory of the one whose name has been made the highest name of all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We may be seated. Well, it was a couple of weeks ago that I was uncharacteristically shocked while reading a work by a great theologian named Augustine, wondering if maybe the brilliant mind had made a blunder. Because there I was, happily reading along, when I came to this line of his, and I quote, God, who is faithful, puts himself in our debt. And knowing Augustine like I do, I thought, well, maybe this is a typo. Maybe this is an error. Let's check the title. Make sure this is Augustine. He would ne- because in my mind, I thought he would never say that man <clears throat> has received such a promise from God. God is never indebted to man. It is always the reverse. Man is obligated to God. But as I read on, Augustine clarified his meaning in a most wonderful way as he wrote this. God puts himself in our debt not by receiving anything from us, but by promising us so much. And indeed, that is our joy this morning to be shocked once again by the abundant promises of our great God. That the covenant-keeping God visits this obscure man named Abram and bestows upon him the greatest of purposes with the greatest of promises. And so we'll look at this very familiar text in three simple headings for our three simple verses. Looking at God's call, then secondly, God's purpose, and then lastly, God's promise. And all of it coming to the main point, which is simply 
God's plan to bring the blessing of Christ to the world. Because it is the great honor of every individual church, isn't it? That she gets to play her small role in God's grand plan of salvation. And so Lord willing, next Lord's Day, Cornerstone Presbyterian Church will hold its first gathered worship. And at the same time, Redeemer Presbyterian Church will hold its gathered worship. And churches all over this land, all over the world, will gather together to worship the triune God. And it is fitting to ask, how did we get here? How did we go from a man named Adam, from a woman named Eve to this? How did we go from Eden to all the earth? How did we go from a garden to a globe? Well, we have in our text this morning a large portion of that answer. As one commentator said in describing this moment as, quote, exceptionally important. And I would say even that is an understatement. Because we have full warrant to say that the hopes of the entire world turns on this episode between our gracious God and this man named Abram. It is a moment of cosmic significance leading to a cosmic covenant that seals God's plan to bless the entire world. And so let us begin verse 1 and see the makings of this cosmic covenant with the call of God, which you see right away in verse 1, with God's first word to Abram, which is simply that of go. In a word, God says, go. And from there, you can bisect that command into two parts. There is a go from, followed by a go to. So firstly, looking at the go from, verse 1. You see this threefold account of what Abram is summoned to leave behind. Firstly, his land. God says, go from your land. Now land, particularly in the ancient Near East, an agrarian economy was one's very livelihood. You might remember, Abraham, quite wealthy, had many possessions, had much livestock, no doubt enjoyed the life of riches and comfort that the land yielded to him. And thus God is saying, leave your means of life as you now know it. Second part of the go from, God tells Abram in verse 1, to leave your kindred, as in all the familial fellowship, all the comforts of camaraderie, even the Thanksgiving dinners, leave that and go. Thirdly, still in the go from section, and perhaps most tender of all, God commands Abram in verse 1 to leave his father's house. Now, the significance of Father's house is not simply the roof that is over Abram's head. No, no, in the ancient Near East, your Father's house is a way of simply saying your very identity. Abram would have been known as Abram ben Terah, Abram son of Terah. In a very real sense, Abram is his Father's house. And so this breaking of ancestral bonds strikes at the very vitals of his person. And so we can bundle those three things together, leaving the farm, leaving the fellowship, leaving the family, and see that in a very real sense, Yahweh is calling Abram to leave the markings of who he is and the things that make life what it is. And it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said that when God calls a man, 
he bids him to come and die. And you see that very same cost of discipleship here with Abram, summoned to lay it down in humble submission to his God. But the call doesn't end there. Remember, there is a go from that follows the go to. And what leaps off the page is the decline of detail in the go to section. We just witnessed God was very specific. These are the three things you're going to leave. And what we might hope for is a similar level of explanation in the go to part. But just look how unspecified is God's charge. And you see at the end of verse one, God simply tells him, go to the land that I will show you. And how tempting to respond. Um, very well, but do, do you have any uh, brochures, any pictures, any demographics of what I'm getting myself into and who will be there and what will I be doing? And the answer, of course, is one of divine simplicity, divine authority. All you need to know is that it is the land that I will show you. And so as Hebrews tells us, Abram went out not knowing where he was going. It is so perfectly constructed that for Abram to obey God, he must trust God implicitly. And Christian, what a simple question to ask of yourself this morning. Would that be said of me? By faith, I obey. Out of the wellspring of trust in my God flows a ready obedience. And to be clear, this particular call is unique to Abram. As preachers, we sometimes overextend ourselves and we overlap his call to be your call. And so to be clear, God is not necessarily calling you today to leave your friends, your family, your job, your home, your land, and go to a new life, so to speak. Not even a new church plant, necessarily. But what is equally clear is that God is calling you to, by faith, obey. To obey in the unknown, to obey in the hard spaces of life, to obey when it seems unclear and undefined, that Christ is calling you with an allegiance that transcends all riches, all comforts, that Christ himself echoes this, that whoever does not have an allegiance that transcends even father or mother is not worthy to follow me, that just as Abram lost his life, and so kept it, so too is the Christian called to lose his life and so find it for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so there is a word on God's call. Let us now look at God's purpose in verse 2, asking the simple reason, simple question rather. What reason, what purpose did God call Abram? And we get our answer right away in verse 2 as the Lord tells him, I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great. Now, it's absolutely crucial to remember that this section comes right on the heels of the Tower of Babel episode in Genesis 11. And recall, Babel was that great tower constructed up to heaven, wherein the people specifically said, let us make a name for ourselves a name for our own glory. And so you had all of Babel gathered together in one language with one goal, all animated by that one principle. Let us make a name for ourselves. 
And just to make the connection to the present day, we have plentiful species of Babel in our own day that you don't have to look very far to see all manner of ideologies and humanistic programs that our culture rallies around and says, given just enough time and progress and science and technology and legislation, we can achieve the fullness of life. We can have our own utopia. And we could review a number of sophisticated philosophers, but in my mind, I think actually the Beatles summed up the spirit of the age quite well when they sang, all you need is love. All we need is love. Let us make a name for ourselves. And so you'd be right to set in contrast the man-made name of Babel and the God-made name of Abram and God's definitive plan to make a name great of his choosing, for that is what God is doing here with Abram. God is stacking the deck, as it were, for his own glory, declaring that the city of man, the spirit of Babel, will not prosper, and it will not endure, and that his name, the name of his choosing, is the only name that will endure. And of course, church, what does this point us forward to? But that the world was once again gathered together, the nations raging, the people plotting, united in one voice with one principle, saying, crucify him, crucify him. This man will not be Lord over us. And God responded, resurrecting him in power and giving him what? giving him the name that is above every name. And so if you're here this morning and not a Christian, this is God's blessing to you. You might hear the word blessing and think something sentimental, perhaps even sappy. But hear that the blessing of God is this, to turn you from your wickedness to turn you from the delusions of Babel and to turn you towards the only name under heaven by which man may be saved. It is freely given and freely received by faith alone. And that is why, though we speak of Abram's obedience, and indeed we should, what is far more fundamental, though, is just how thoroughly saturated with grace, is the call to Abram. What single move had Abram made it to this point? What single thing has he done? Nothing. He was entirely passive. And not simply passive, he's antagonistic to God. Remember that prior to his call, here was a man who practiced the idolatry and the pagan worship of his homeland. Outside of the mercy of God, Father Abraham is faithless Abraham. Father Abraham is false worshiper Abraham. It is by the preeminent grace of God that he is chosen, and it is no different for you or I, that in the unbreakable chains of sin, God called us out of darkness and into his holy purposes. And you see such a purpose emerge so clearly in verse 2. As you can see, God tells him, I'm going to make your name great, not for any self-serving purpose, 
that would terminate with Abraham, you see the purpose statement at the end of verse 2. Made great so that he will be a blessing. There was a virtue of English nobility that dates back even to the time of Homer. It's almost fallen entirely out of use now. And it's the concept of noblesse oblige. Noblesse oblige. And the concept is simple enough. It was that if you were born of nobility, of privilege, then you had a responsibility and obligation to do good unto others. And there's a sense in which God is here placing on Abram the grandest noblesse oblige of all. That if he ever asked himself, why was the womb of my wife opened? Why did I receive a covenant promise like none other? Why did God call me out of Ur? He would only need to bring to mind the purpose statement of verse 2. Oh yes, I have been blessed so that I might bless others. And Christian, I hope you see that is all too true of you today. That you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. That you have been gifted from on high. And when you ask yourself, why have I been given so much? Well, we see it's clearly not to hoard up our blessings, but so that you might be a blessing to others. If God has blessed you with wisdom, it will be so that you might teach it to others. If God has blessed you with riches, it might be so that you could display God's generosity. Whatever the gift, whatever the talent, whatever the strength, it would all be a so that I might bless others. Well, as wonderful as this purpose sounds, remember that Abram is 75 years of age. Sarah, his wife, is barren. If you think you feel old, Romans says they were, quote, as good as dead. And so the logical question arises, well, how can he be a great nation if he can't even be a family of three? At every human level, God's purpose seems entirely contradicted by reality. And so it goes for the Christian life, that God does indeed reveal to us his purposes so clearly to conform us to Jesus Christ, to sanctify us, to increase us in the knowledge of God. And then what happens? Then the cancer screen comes back. Then the call comes that that job of yours is no longer your job. The reality of sufferings, anxieties, tribulations, and the purposes of God seem contradicted by our nearsighted vision. What we learn from Abram so clearly is how to be faithfully farsighted. That as Romans tells of him, he did not weaken in the faith when he considered his own body when he considered Sarah's barren womb. In other words, he did not weaken when he looked upon his circumstances. And not only that, not only did he not weaken, commendable as that is, Romans continues and says that he grew even stronger in the faith. Now that seems impossible. How do you grow stronger when everything in front of you tells you to be weaker? When we see the very thing that God purposed, God also promised. And so Romans continues, and it shows us the mechanics of faith, for it says this, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, fully convinced that God was able to do, and here's the key part, what 
he had promised. It's of course one thing to be aware of God's promises. It is quite another thing to be fully convinced that God can and will do what he has promised. And so I do hope you look at Abram's faith and it encourages your own. I would venture to say, though, that in our honest moments, we would say, yeah, I don't have faith like that. My faith does waver. It is weak. But just as Israel had to look up at that bronze serpent, we see in Abram the direction that we are to look, that so much of faith depends on where you are looking. Look up at God's great and very precious promises. Look up, most of all, to the one who is himself God's promise to us, the promised Messiah, and say with the psalmist, Lord, give me life according to your promise. And so there is a word on God's purpose. We are enriched to enrich others. Now, thirdly, let us look at what we've already touched upon, and that is God's promises. It is rather astounding just how front-loaded the promises of God are to him. Again, he has done nothing He is a statue at this point. And God says, here is a treasure chest of my covenant blessings, lavished out, poured over. See, the key for Abram was not what he had to do for God. The key was what God was going to do for him and through him. And you see that reality in full bloom in verse 3. God's covenant promise that Abram's friends are God's friends and his enemies, God's enemies. Verse 3 reads this. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Kids, you might be familiar with the term, I don't know if it's still in circulation, but the term blood brothers. I knew it when I was a child. And the idea was simple enough. It was that you would draw some blood of your own hand, and then your friend would draw some blood of their hand, and then you would come together to be blood brothers, and you would shake hands. All very hygienic stuff. And we probably didn't realize it at the time, kids, but that is covenantal thinking because we were making a pact. We were saying, your friends, my friends, your enemies, my enemies, even if the spilling of blood should happen. That's, of course, one thing for schoolboys. But oh, that the great God, maker of heaven and earth, would come down and do that for this pagan named Abram and say, if someone dishonors you, they will have me to answer to. And that will be vital, of course, because you only need to read on a little further and see that this promised land is an enemy-occupied land, a territory teeming with Canaanites, and yet God sends Abram out on this mission of dominion, saying, take this beachhead for the kingdom of God and arm yourself with my covenant promise. And it falls to us, it falls to the church today to draw the greatest confidence, the greatest courage that we inherit the very same promise that our great God sends us out and commissions us and says, take the beachhead that is this world for the kingdom of God. And whoever dishonors you, whoever dishonors the bride of Christ will have the bridegroom to answer to, the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
Well, we've seen just how much grace was deposited in this one man to bless all the families of the earth. But as great as the promises were given to Abram, they were not fully received by Abraham. And you know the story. Father Abraham is indeed at times faithless Abraham. And so too with Isaac, and then with Jacob, and then with Israel, and then with David, and then with the kings, and then with the prophets. And all the world wonders, what becomes of this great blessing? Is that promise in peril? What about all the families of the earth? And so it is in the fullness of time that God brings forth the seed of Abraham, our true blood brother, who would take upon himself with the only blood worthy to absorb the wrath of God so that in him all the families of the earth might be blessed. That as certain as Jesus Christ has died, was buried, and risen, so certain is God's plan to bring the blessing of his beloved son to the four corners of the world. And so as we begin to close, let us take up into our hearts but three things of these ancient promises and what they mean for us here and now. Firstly, the summons of blessing. That just as God told Abram to go, in the very same way God tells the church, go. Go therefore, make disciples. Go to McKinney, go to Allen, go to the ends of the earth, for it is through the church, through a redeemer, through a cornerstone, that God brings the blessing of Christ to the world. Secondly, the purpose of God's blessing. Redeemer Church, if you ever find yourselves asking, why have we been given so much? Why has God blessed us with so much? Whether it's materially, spiritually, provisionally, why so much? Well, no, as a farewell, I can heartily affirm that what verse 2 says of you is all too true. So that you might be a blessing. For you have already, in so many ways, more than you even know, been a blessing to this little daughter of yours named Cornerstone. As I look out on this sea of souls and see the encouragement, the prayer, the support, the giving, I can't help but affirm that verse 2 is all too true of you, that you have been blessed to be a blessing. And so my simple word to you would simply be, do not grow weary in doing good. And lastly, thirdly, the glory of God's blessing. There was once a uh, a great writer who was rebuked for his his ego. And the, the rebuke came in the form of a simple question. It was, hey, do you realize how often you use the word I in your writings? And the writer was noticeably embarrassed when it was pointed out to him. You surely noticed the same thing if you're in conversation with someone. And they repeatedly use that pronoun, I, 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 me, me, me. You can't help but wince at their self-importance. That's because we all recognize something's off there. The weight of glory is askew. No one person should have that much of that pronoun. 
I hope you see we're refreshingly reminded here how that is not so for our great God. That when we say, to God be the glory, what we're really saying is that God is to use that pronoun all that he wants to. And listen once more from Genesis 12. It's the land that I will show you. I will make your name great. I will bless. I will curse. I am the Lord who blesses you. And the great confidence of the church is that that very same pronoun rolls off the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember what he said to Peter? I will build my church. I will build my church. For that is the unreserved and only hope of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, of Cornerstone Presbyterian Church, of the church universal from age to age that Christ has promised my blessing will flow as far as the curse is found. Let us pray. And gracious God and Holy Father, indeed, how great, how very precious are your promises. Indeed, because of them, the promises of God, the one whose steadfast love knows no end, the promise of the God who keeps covenant to a thousand generations, the promise of the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so teach us, we pray, to say along with the psalmist, Lord, give me life according to your promises. Promises that we know come to us as yes and amen, because they come to us in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is in his name we pray, amen.